Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's Podcast. I'm Terry Patar, I lead the Jane's Intelligence Unit, and on this episode I am joined by a special guest, Peter W. Singer. Peter is a prolific author and has written several books, um, which are both nonfiction and fiction. So in terms of nonfiction, uh, Like War, I think, is the most recent one, Peter, that you've written in terms of looking at social media and how that's playing out in, in, in relation to conflict. And intriguingly, um, some of the fiction books you've written in terms of Ghost Fleet, which people may have heard of, and more recently Burn In, focused on the future, but very much tied into current trends. And we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit in terms of how you go about writing those. But Peter, thanks for joining us on the podcast. It'll be great to get an idea from you of some of your current work that goes beyond what I've just mentioned and, and some of the background and maybe a little bit of how you got to where you are at the moment in terms of what you're working on. Well, first off, thanks for having me. Really appreciate the kind intro too. Uh, it's funny, my, my son, who's in elementary school, asked me, you know, sort of what job do you do exactly, Daddy? And then I, I listed out all the different affiliations. So I work at New America, which is a think tank. I also um, teach at Arizona State. I teach uh, cybersecurity policy. And um, then I, as you mentioned, write books and then uh, do uh, consulting for both government and for the private sector. And then finally, August Cole and I have launched uh, a project called Useful Fiction that uh, works with clients and helping them utilize the power of forecasting and narrative. And so, you know, basically I have like five different jobs, <laughs> you know, five different hats to wear. Um, maybe the way of thinking about it, my wife, she just, this is all so strange to say this in, you know, post COVID, but she despises and I love buffets. Uh, when we have restaurants, <laughs> like I like to get a little bit of each uh, type of food. And she's like, that's disgusting and horrible. And now, now I realize, you know, the danger of buffets. But the point is, mm -hmm. like, I think my professional side shows that too, that I like to play in sort of different realms. Um, I like teaching. I like working with business. I like working with government. Um, and then the fiction side is uh, bringing that insight and research over, but using the creative side. So uh, hopefully that doesn't scare people off too much, um, but it's what keeps me interested. I think it's I think it's fascinating. And I think especially, in, and this is maybe going a little off topic, but especially in the context of um, a fair number of the things I've read and, and listened to over the past couple of years. I mean, I think about a book uh, like Range by David Epstein. I don't know if you've read it, but where he talks about the value of being involved in so many different fields that they all inform each other and you know you, you end up developing um, skills and expertise by not always just specializing deeply on one area but actually getting across multiple areas and I think it's great how you kind of bring all those different aspects together in some of your work and um, yeah it'd be great to talk a, a bit about some of that and uh, you know we, we were in touch obviously before this and talking about some of the different projects you're involved in and for me What's fascinating about all your work is that it all relates to, or it seems, from my perception anyway, to always relate to thinking about the future and to helping people understand the future, which is, you know, the core of what intelligence is about. You know, when you're when you're thinking about the future, how do you go about doing it? Yeah, so the thread that's linked up um, all of my work, again, you know, going back to my first book was on the rise of private military contractors <laughs> to then a project on um, robotics and then cybersecurity to more recently, these looks at um, social media or AI. I think one part of it is trying to identify key trends. So, you know, this goes back to that difference between uh, futures work and forecasting, where you're, you're, you're trying to identify the forces that will shape the future as opposed to this specific minute future. Um, but rather, these are the key trends, these are the key forces that are going to shape the future and that related to them, we have to better understand them. And then my own approach as well has been often looking at forces or trends that I often feel are sort of staring us in the face, but for whatever reason, bureaucratic inertia, organizational culture, whatever it is that we refuse to face. And so that's been sort of the thread that's lashed up uh, my work. In particular, where we've brought in the fiction side of this is the conscious realization that the traditional ways of trying to communicate new or complex ideas or new or complex technologies or forces often aren't working. Um, and we all kind of know that, right? We, we write that strategy paper, you, you build that <laughs> board brief, and you put all that work into it, and it just doesn't strike with the effect that you hope for. It doesn't grab either the leadership's attention or 
public attention or leads to action. And so what we found with our experience with Ghost Fleet is, and this is something that, you know, again, I'm, all this is backed by the research side, is that narrative can be a very powerful mm -hmm. tool uh, for this. So with Ghost Fleet, I had you know, done lots of work and, you know, we're talking about it and books on military reading lists and the like. But um, that project turned out to be the most influential of my career. It was a novel crossed with nonfiction research. That was the book that got us, and the same for August Cole, my partner on it. August had been a Wall Street Journal re defense reporter. So, you know, he'd had front page stories and the like too. And yet that was the book that got us invited to the White House Situation Room, uh, three different times testifying to Congress, multiple parliaments, uh, you know, Australia, uh, uh, Nobel Peace Institute, over a hundred different um, briefings to military units and locations that ranged from JSOC, the team that got bin Laden, to mm -hmm. the deck of the HMS Queen Elizabeth. And this is not to talk about the novel, but to talk about the real world insights, the real world lessons from it. So for Ghost Fleet, it envisioned the future of war and envisioned certain key cybersecurity vulnerabilities, supply chain issues, great power conflict, all these key trends that now, you know, in 2021 are self-evident. But when we started that project back in 2013, it, we, we were getting a lot of resistance to it. But it was that, that packaging within narrative that gave it that greater yeah. power. We've experienced the same thing most recently with Burnin. So Burnin, um, the nonfiction side of it is a focus on what we believe to be the most important technology trend out there that is the least understood. And that's artificial intelligence and automation across society, not just in, in war, but how it hits economics, politics, you name it. And it's not just us that thinks that. Now we get to the data side. 91% of leaders say AI is the most important game-changing technology that's out there. 17% say, I get it. <laughs> I understand how it works. I understand mm -hmm. how it's going to be used. I understand its dilemmas. That is a massive delta. Mm -hmm. And so we felt the best way to go after that is through a story. So mm -hmm. Burn In is a techno thriller. It's a story. But baked into it are over 300 explanations, predictions of everything from how does AI actually work? What are the plans to use um, face recognition by the police, by Amazon? What are the dilemmas that are going to play out in warfare, in business, uh, for example, algorithmic bias? And so you read the story, but you walk away from it with that kind of understanding. It's sort of, you know, I referenced earlier that I was a parent. It's akin to what I did to my kids this morning. I snuck fruit and veggies into their morning smoothie. <laughs> Except in this case, it's for policymakers who aren't going to read that five-page report on algorithmic bias or that right. white paper on here's how AI is going to affect our industry, but they will read and digest and enjoy mm -hmm. that same information but packaged through a story. We do the hardcore research. We, we bring in the reports. We interview folks but we share it through a non-traditional means that the data shows hits with greater effect. Um, one of the sort of funny slash scary things that's happened in the last couple of months is in Burnin, for example, again, it was a, a novel. It had a scene of a conspiracy theory fueled riot in the middle of Washington, D.C. on the National Mall. There's another scene where there was a high militarized wall thrown up around the White House, which turned out to be exactly the location where they put it. And then um, uh, there's another scene where a water system is hacked to change the chemical levels, which you may have seen just happen in the United States. So people are like, hey, there's sort of this, this double reaction of, one, how is it that you keep predicting this stuff and we're like well it's because we do the research and then there's the other part which is hey guys can you just write a romantic comedy next <laughs> <laughs> like, we don't like this stuff coming uh, true yeah. but that's the difference between science fiction you're not dreaming it up you're doing the research um and i would say the parallel though with intelligence is that sometimes the greatest value of it is when what you project doesn't come true. That is when you provide an insight, a warning that gives people the off ramp. Um, 
And, you know, so like you mentioned, uh, ghost fleet, there are certain things in ghost fleet that will not come true because of ghost fleet, uh, certain supply chain vulnerability issues that got attention among leadership that got closed off. I mean, I hadn't fully realized actually some of the impact that your work has had. So it's amazing to get that description from you. And from your perspective, how do you go, how do you in August sort of start out in the process? Yeah. How does it work? What, what comes first for you guys? The way to think about it is narrative has three attributes in a way that traditional conveyance, you know, a PowerPoint or whatever doesn't. The first is our human brains are literally wired to take in story in a more effective manner. Um, to put it in, and it's because of evolution. You know, mm -hmm. we, we were using story to communicate ideas when we were back gathered around fires. PowerPoint, it's exactly 30 <laughs> years old. But the data behind it is that, simply put, when you read a conventional memorandum, uh, a PowerPoint, two parts of your brain light up. When you read a narrative, four parts of your brain light up. So it is a more effective means of conveying new or complex information. You, your brain is more likely to understand it and more likely to stick. The second value of narrative is emotion. It brings in emotion. And as everyone from a politician to a used car salesman knows, emotion is what drives the sale, what leads to action. And that's not just me. Um, Nobel Prize winning uh, economist, Daniel Kahneman, described mm -hmm. how um, it's not uh, facts that persuade and numbers that persuade, it's story. There's an economist saying this. Um, mm -hmm. The third value is connection and um, distribution. We as humans connect over story, uh, and we that means we are not only more likely to read a story, we're more likely to share it with someone else. So the ask that you're making of someone, not just the public, but a, a CEO, a four-star admiral, I'm using real examples mm -hmm. here, it's, there's a difference between saying to them, um, I want you to read this briefing note. Can you read this memo to, hey, here's a short story that you might enjoy. And in turn, they are more likely to share it with someone else, to share it with a peer. Mm -hmm. So the power of narrative is that your audience then starts to do the work for you. Mm -hmm. And we experience this again. You know, I talked about like Ghost Fleet, um, you know, it was a uh, one of our early um, advocates was uh, the chief of naval operations, the most senior leader in the U.S. Navy. Um, his staff, in lieu of a traditional briefing note before a long flight, uh, ironically enough, to China, said, hey, sir, um, you might enjoy this book. Uh, and he's like, you know, I much prefer this. And then he told how he got off the plane and he wanted to talk to other people about the story. And so he's the one that started sharing it with peers and like he became our advocate. That's the same. Um, and now this gets to your question about how you do it. The difference between what we call useful fiction and science fiction mm. is you have to follow the rules of the real. Uh, it, you have to follow all the rules of um, nonfiction, of how you would do intelligence analysis and collection. Uh, we also call it the no vaporware rule. Um, every single technology, every single place, every single kind of, you know, for example, hack has to already exist or be possible. So you can't kind of write your way out of the story um, by dreaming up, you know, some kind of solution. It has to be, no, this is something that played out because, as you said, it has to come with footnotes. So um, Bernan has... 27 pages of research footnotes um, and that's you know so every time there is a, a something that appears um, a delivery drone is two characters are talking footnote to show hey that's actually the amazon's patent for it or um this kind of cyber attack happened here is how either it already happened in israel or how it was displayed at a at a defcon convention um and so that 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 makes it a lot more challenging, certainly from the creative side. Now, how do we do it? Um, it really depends on the starting point. When it's, you know, August and, and I on our own, um, like I mentioned, you know, we, we choose the topic, we choose the approaches. We wanted to tell a story around um, the idea of AI and, and how it might 
play out in our world over the next 10, 15 years. We also were kind of pushing back against um, some of the misunderstanding of it and robotics. And in particular, if we go to the, the security side, the overwhelming focus on killer robots as opposed to the industrial revolution that robotics is. And related, at a certain point, you um, a character, a story emerges. Um, so we have a central character in it that uh, August put it really well as you know, sort of more and more she began to look back at us from the pages and and they 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 build and you layer out that's different though when it's we're working with an organization so in other situations um the organization has a strategy paper so uh whether i gave whether it's the u.s congress you know we've got a 180 page report that 40 people have worked on um help us turn it into something that will grab people's imagination. Um, we're doing another project with a military that um, has uh, a 40 page, uh, essentially it's their vision for change over the next 15 years, you know, classic strategy white paper. And they've approached us and said, we need a useful fiction package to accompany it to allow both our senior leadership and our members, our junior officers, to be able to visualize all these things that we're talking about. So it, for example, had three themes, three chapters in that report. We built a short story that weaving through the story are these three themes. Um, so it's it's kind of a, a push-pull. Um, is it something that you're starting out on your own or are you working with someone else to help them visualize it? Um, we've also done a, a, another aspect that might be of interest to, to people in the, the podcast where in certain situations, uh, we've not done it ourselves. We've mentored members of the organization for them to do it. Uh, so for example, we had a project with the US Air Force's futures team where they say, you know, look, we don't, we don't want you to um, write our future stuff. Uh, we helped build a basically an executive ed training course where mm. we took them through the howls of both forecasting and communication skills. And what was so cool about it is, and it was these Air Force officers, um, not just learning from us, but from experts in forecasting futures and communications. So we brought in, you know, everything from science fiction writers to uh, a Wall Street billionaire, how he makes investment in the future, uh, the former head of US Special Operations, how they thought about the future, the head of Australian um, military training, how they're training their officers for the future. But then on the communication side, on the world building side, we brought in um, the co-writers of HBO Game of Thrones, the um, woman behind uh, the movies, uh, Crazy Rich Asians, Hunger Games, mm -hmm. and the team behind the TV series, The Walking Dead. And, you know, they didn't talk about like what the future is. It wasn't like, oh, it's going to be all zombies. They <laughs> talked about, here's how you build something that is compelling. Here's how you yeah. draw your target audience into a world. Here's how you strike their emotion. And so you gave the um, the students, I sort of feel odd saying that, you know, because they're mid-career people, but you gave the students an ability, a skill set on, okay, here's how I think about forecasting, but here's also how I think about drawing people into the world that I want to communicate to them. That's, yeah, that's that's really fascinating because we are, you know, at James, we deliver a lot of intelligence training and a big part of that is thinking about the future and it's based around a lot of techniques which will be familiar to you know no doubt yourself and plenty of people in our audience and plenty of people working in defense and military and it's the things like scenario analysis or wargaming um but a lot of that relies on i think people having the imagination you know for scenario analysis you've got to be able to build convincing plausible compelling scenarios so there is that creative aspect to it so is is your work really in, in that training is it to help them 
kind of continue using those kinds of techniques they're familiar with or are you hoping that actually they'll broaden out from that and do something even even bigger or or, or more imaginative with their, their way of thinking about the future so it really depends um on the goal of that package or that organization so in some situations uh it may be help us visualize the future uh we want to understand these trends and what they mean in other situations it may be we are building a case for x how do we help people visualize understand x either why we should do it or the inverse of that if we don't do x we're going to be in a, in a bad situation so you know that and that that's where there is a slight difference between tradition you know an intelligence analysis um you you should not advocate uh you know there's a long professional debate around that but mm -hmm. th there is <laughs> yeah. that but there is mm -hmm. also you can utilize useful fiction narrative for the mm -hmm. other part of it which is that persuasion side and so it really depends on the organization and what their intent and goal is on how they want to deploy this toolkit um i would say in the but part of what we're after is really a question of what are the stories that your organization feels it either needs to tell or it's not doing a good job of telling and i don't mean the the scenarios i mean what are the mm. stories of everything from and and part of that is recognizing um now we get to the rules of this there's different rules of how to do it well one is um target audience so when i say what are the stories your organization is not telling well some people might say it's um they might start referring to an external audience um maybe it's a public maybe it's members of a parliament um we need to persuade them or explain to them of uh x this trend or the need for this strategy other people might say um senior leadership so it's inside the organization we senior leadership doesn't understand this trend or doesn't understand the value of this project we're proposing other times it might be the inverse it might be senior leadership saying it's our membership it's our our junior officers don't understand who we are what we need to do so that question of what are the stories that we need to tell more effectively then another part of it is um as you you know describe scenarios is i think a flaw of um intelligence uh, definitely on um corporate war and military wargaming is um fleshed out characters uh a flaw um in the real world side and kind of the fictionalized side is um really flat characters two-dimensional and by that it's the the bad guy the adversary that um does what is expected and um you know pulls at their mustache sneeringly uh and that is not an interesting story to read and that is a flawed if you're trying to you know sort of imagine the future mm -hmm. you want a uh adversary that um is looking at your vulnerabilities trying to exploit them not doing exactly what you expect and what you want to have happen um oh by the way every bad guy in in fiction and the real world believes they're the hero of the story uh you know mm -hmm. the, the members of isis one of the most vile horrible organizations in all of history they thought they were the heroes of the story and right. so you yeah. need to have that kind of built in same thing mm -hmm. um when you're looking at your own organization it doesn't work to perfection um and so you know kind of to bring in the non-fiction side um every good story should have a little bit of uh clausewitzian friction thrown in right, <laughs> right. um uh, a little bit of dirt under the fingernail of the characters i i will say one of the things that's been interesting is that when people have gone through this kind of training they're at the start of it they're like you know i i you know what are you talking about I'm not creative you know we, we had like a, a full board colonel in the air force you know uh little after mid-career you know kind of looking at a strange and then at the end of it he and and sorry to be clear that the story that that he wanted to tell um was the challenges of um 
acquisition related to AI. Now that seems like a you know how are you gonna you, you just you know arch your eyebrows of like <laughs> how do you make that interesting? Yeah, and yeah. yet, and he was making the case for acquisition reform as to how the Air Force should buy AI in the future. And yet, at by the end of it, he had built a incredibly compelling narrative that drew people into a scenario but the scenario was just an opening to making the for the why and how of acquisition reform um, and to sort of drop you into it the opening scene of his memo was an acquisition officer at a funeral reflecting on the decisions that he had made two or three years earlier that led to this point. So I just, that that's two sentences. I just drew you into visually, you know, you may have felt a little bit of kind of an emotional spark. Yeah. And then he moved into, okay, this is the how and the why of, of, of these changes in bureaucratic approach. Um, and so I hope, and, and, you know, he was like, I never imagined that, that at the end of, you know, this is what I could do. But, um, that to me is the the wonder, the joy of this is you get the creation, but you also open up an alternative route for influencing a target audience, which for him was fellow acquisition officers, fellow acquisition officers. We need to think differently about how we're, how we're going after AI. He made the case, but he made the case by utilizing narrative, but it wasn't dreamy. It was a realistic scenario. Well, I've got so many questions bubbling up in my mind, but there was, there's one that you just touched on there, which I wanted to maybe broaden out from. So you, you described there somebody who was perhaps initially resistant to taking on the some of the ideas you were pushing in terms of, you know, using narrative to get to make a point. And is that something you come across a lot in terms of your audience within defense and military where a lot of people, you know, because I hear it definitely from, from people we work with in those um, types of organizations where they'll say to me, oh, you know, I, I never read, I never read fiction. Um, I only ever read nonfiction. Um, and so, yeah, is that, is that something that has happened a lot in terms of the work that you've, you've been uh, sort of involved in? So I think there's a couple of things. One, the fact that um, myself and August you know, have our bona fides on the, on the nonfiction side allows us mm -hmm. to kind of dodge that a little bit. So we're not coming in as dreamy sci-fi writers we're coming in as people mm -hmm. that you know people have worked with us and or seen our non-fiction side second there is a misnomer and that that is the difference between generic fiction overall or science fiction and what we're doing you know the mm -hmm. useful fiction side so it's it's not dreamed up it's not made up we're taking your strategy paper we're taking this real cyber attack and explaining it in a, in a manner that um, communicates it so that a non-specialist will understand. So it's that grounded side. So if your critique, your concern is that it's too fictional, it's like, actually, no, we're using the starting point of where you're at. Um, there's also a bit of a, uh, sometimes a misnomer of the intent of it, um, where they'll say, well, you know, this didn't happen. And you're like, if the intent was to explain how AI works, we're not saying that this made up fictional character, this is exactly what happened. Did you walk away from reading the story understanding algorithmic bias? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, we accomplished our mission set. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that on February 25th, 2023, this exactly happened. That was not our goal. The right. goal was for you mm -hmm. to understand how does AI work or um, did you walk away from it understanding that uh, supply chain hacks are a, a different kind of possibility than people you know, clicking a mm -hmm. link? Yes or no. Not that this specific hack. Oh, by the way, often the critique of this won't happen is, yeah, because we influenced we that didn't happen because someone fixed what we pointed out. We highlighted. Um, yeah, so yeah. Ghost Fleet um, sparked three different U.S. government investigations um, to close off what happened. Or there's also a um, separate from the investigation side. Uh, there's a $3.6 billion U.S. Navy ship program literally called Ghost Fleet. So people be like, oh, but this, and you're like, yeah, they, there's, there's a reason. But then the final part of it um, where people are like, you know, oh, I don't do fiction. Well, you know, my response to it would be, um, do you write budgets for the future? Do you <laughs> train for the future? Right. Do you do acquisitions for the future? 
you're engaging and you're a futurist. Uh, we're, we're all futurists, yeah. you know, whether we do training, whether we do acquisitions, whether we do budgeting, strategy for an organization, we're making decisions um, about the future, assumptions about the future. And oh, by the way, some of the most seemingly, you know, uh, nonfiction, avoid it, um, only look at the engineering are utterly fictional. I mean, you know, so mm -hmm. I, I love, for example, you know, we've got certain on the military side, weapons acquisitions programs that, um, you know, are, are baked, they're, they're baked into them as the assumption we're going to be buying this new version of uh, this jet fighter to the year 2060. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're like, you know, one, I feel really bad for whatever young officer is given the new jet fighter in 2060 that was designed in 1997. But who are we yeah. battling against in, in your 2060 assumption? You know, mm -hmm. is it the Latin American empire or Alpha Centauri? Um, or, you know, I, I, same on the, the geopolitical economic futures. Just this morning, um, someone was pontificating about um, great power rivalry and uh, saying, you know, look, yes, China is surging ahead in its economy, but by the year 2060, uh, the sorry, they said it was they said by the year 2080, the United States economy will be bigger again. Like that's fiction, right? I mean, <laughs> like, right. Th mm. And and that's where um, there's r another rule of um, useful fiction that actually is drawn from one of our inspirations, which is Arthur C. Clarke. Um, Arthur C. Clarke was a amazing scientist. He you know, launches us into the space age. He comes up with the concept of the artificial satellite, but he was even a greater science fiction writer. And he talked about how once you move more than a generation ahead, you're really moving from the realm of science into magic because you, you know, it just starts to, it's hard to understand, you know, people live in a, you know, pre-nuclear age talking to, you know, how, you know, that sort of, yeah. so I see sort of similar, we, one of the rules of useful fiction is we, you know, all real world, no vaporware, but also mm -hmm. we stay within timelines that are realistic where you can project the trend as opposed to once you move more than a generation out, you're really dancing in the realm of magic, whether it's yeah. technologic magic or geopolitical or economic magic. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. And you mentioned that sort of thinking about assumptions and, and how people make those and, and maybe use this process as well to test those assumptions. But how do you in August maybe go about breaking free from just straight trend line and straight line trend analysis? So just looking at the trends and assuming they're going to continue. How do you, and, and tied to that, how do you maybe try to foresee big disruptions? You know, people still like to refer to black swan events, et cetera. But, you know, is there any way that you build into your process trying to think about where could be something that will come come along that we just, that no one's anticipating right now? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, we're certainly more drawn towards the um, the uh, white or sorry, the you know the the rhino. I'm I'm forgetting what color we're supposed to the the gray rhino. Uh, what is it? Mm -hmm. you know, so there's black swan versus gray rhino. Right. Um. You know the black swan. Like you know, people in Australia are always like, I never get. I mean, <laughs> like, it's, um. But it's the big ugly trend staring you in the face that no one wants to come to grips with. Mm -hmm. The the rhino. That's what we're more drawn to. But I would say, you know, how do you avoid this? It's it's actually again the same kind of methodologies that you would use in you know good generic nonfiction research to intelligence analysis is um, multiple sources multiple methodologies so mm -hmm. that you uh, are trying to come at it from multiple different angles um, or you know to continue our our animal parallel it's the you know you want you want multiple hands touching that elephant to, to truly get the sense of it um, so we will pull from everything from tech reports, um, you know, cybersecurity vulnerability reports or uh, latest lab results. Um, we will pull from, you know, whether it's Jane's political analysis to uh, what a, a, a Chinese military journal, we, you know, so that's your, your textual side. We will pull from 
quantitative side. So uh, Burn In um, was a uh, is a book about, among other things, the effect that AI and automation will have on our security business and society. One of the research aspects we did is um, built a data set that pulled in every single job projection re report we could find. So everything from McKinsey says 45% of jobs will be automated over the next 20 years. Oxford University looked at 702 occupational specialties. They said 47%. Mm. Um, uh, what is it? PricewaterhouseCoopers says 38%. OECD said 9%. We built a, and then you break it down by um, overall global to professional to region, UK, US, you name it. It's an Excel spreadsheet that actually has over 3,000 data points in it. So by doing that, you get the kind of wisdom of the crowd. So, you know, I, I, I'm less concerned about McKinsey arguing with Oxford, whether it's 45% or 47%. But when I lay those out on a spread of what the different experts are saying, I get to see, you know, sort of what's playing. So it might be a quantitative side. The final thing, lesson going back to, you know, you asked about fiction and nonfiction, people. Uh, you got to talk to people. Um, and it, uh, and diverse people, um, different occupational specialties, different backgrounds, different classes, you, you name it. Um, and those conversations, sometimes it might be um, searching for ideas. Sometimes it might be searching for things that they know are important but feel are hard to communicate. Uh, so, you know, how did we get the water systems uh, breach vulnerability prediction right when most people weren't paying attention to it? Um, it was two things. One, uh, sorry, three things. Um, one, interviews with water systems engineers of, you know, basically sort of frame it as when you're having beers with other people in your field, what do you talk about is like, oh, I can't believe we did X. I can't believe this hasn't happened yet. You know, I can't, what is something that people don't know that they ought to know? And that was an example. So that's how you get at it. Similarly, you can have that conversation with, you know, military people, whatever. The second is um, uh, you, in that situation, you look for um, things that have happened accidentally that might be done deliberately uh, because that is actually what inspires real world hackers. So there have been certain situations where chemical settings, um, the, there was, you know, the technical term would be software glitch uh, that happened accidentally. And hackers look at that and say, ooh, I could cause that glitch. I'm making a joke. It's not really the yeah. technical term. Um, and then the third is the you know, vulnerability reports. But so you talk to people and it might be on the, the early, you know, sort of the idea origination side. But then the other thing that you do, again, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, is you stress test it. You run mm -hmm. it past people for everything from the, the overall theme to the little micro details that if you get them wrong, someone in that field won't buy the overall story. So uh, in Ghost Fleet, for example, we there's a scene in it that um, it's a what a dogfight might look like with fifth generation fighter jets. That's never happened in, in reality. Mm -hmm. So how do you depict that? Um, we interviewed U.S. Air Force and U.S. Navy pilots um, and uh, and people who have done adversary work and basically were like, OK, if this was a situation, what move would you pull? And so while most readers just, oh, that's an exciting thing, an F-15 pilot reads at it and is like, yeah, that's real. That's the move I'd pull mm. um, because okay. it was the source was an F-15 pilot. So and that's that, again, getting that you know, it, it's both kind of the overall theme, right? You might have that kind of read, or you might say, you know, I got to get this terminology right, because if I don't, they're not going to buy the the larger. That's fascinating. Yeah, that is, that, that's, that's really interesting, that process that you work through to ensure that it is, it is still realistic and that it is, um, uh, isn't something that people are going to pick apart and say, well, hang on, this, 
yeah, this doesn't make sense or, you know, that it, that it is tied to all of that. And that's um, one of those lessons that, again, carries across between, you know, this work and I would say, you know, again, we teach for more broad is, mm-hmm. um, you know, identifying your target audience is important for both what you craft, again, whether it's a memo or a useful pic- fiction package. Um, too many people don't build with their target audience in mind, understand your target audience's knowledge, their emotional triggers, et cetera. But then you also, once you've created it, identify test audience representatives of that target, trusted you know, people to read it and vet it, you red team it. Yeah. You red team your, your, your written product. Um, and that means that the final form will be more realistic, more valuable, will strike with the effect that you want. Um, obviously, well, we've talked quite a bit on uh, good and useful fiction. I also wanted to ask you about bad fiction and in the sense of disinformation. And I know that's something you've been involved in recently, a sort of new initiative um, to try and educate people to try and help them defend better against or defend their perceptions, I suppose, better against disinformation. Um, it'd be great to get your thoughts on that a little bit more about, you know, how how do we how do we as people cope in a world that is now increasingly um, seeing us exposed to disinformation? Oh, wow. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Initiative no, absolutely. Too, so. yeah. I'm excited yeah. to talk about yeah. it because it's just yeah. so crucial. Uh, this all comes out of a nonfiction um, book project called Like War that I did with mm-hmm. Emerson Brooking. Uh, and we started that back in, I want to say like 2012. And we were looking at how the then relatively new technology of social media was, you know, while it was being framed as a great positive and connection point, um, that it was also being used in conflict zones and being used as increasingly as a weapon. Now, that seems quite obvious now, but, you know, go back in time, there's a lot of pushback against it. So that's the origin of the work on this larger problem of both deliberate disinformation, but also misinformation, conspiracy theory, you name it. And of course, it is struck with incredible effect across pretty much any issue area that you care about, whether it is national security, the health of your democracy, public health, the the pandemic has inarguably killed more people, tens of thousands more people, because of what public health professionals call the accompanying infodemic, the swirl of misinformation and disinformation around it. And that's not just Peter Singer saying that, that's what public health professionals have said. So I think think we've seen that in lots of countries. Absolutely. Confined to one place. Uh, And again, just, you know, and this is a a problem set that just as you hit, hits every country, um, it's certainly, you know, lashed up within, you know, on the disinformation side, Russian information warfare. But oh, by the way, the practitioners are not just Russia. It's at every level, you know, we've seen over 35 different um, nations uh, elections targeted by this phenomena. Um, But it also plays out at the individual level. Um, Many of us probably experience the same of our kids being targeted by this kind of information. Um, It certainly has corporate resonance. And it's been interesting to see corporations kind of wake up to the fact that uh, the cost of a traditional cybersecurity breach may actually be less than misinformation or disinformation about your company going viral. Uh, And so corporations are increasingly being targeted by these campaigns. Um, So big issue, hugely important, going to be even more so in the future. Uh, So, you know, you asked about how do we approach the future and think through it. There's there's value in utilizing um, wisdom of the crowds crossed with experts exercises. So a couple of months back, I was part of a, um, a war game that brought together, but the participants were the top strategists and futurists for a variety of different organizations, um, Fortune 500 corporations, the CIA, universities, basically, you know, the the person at each of these organizations is in charge of thinking about the future. So let's bring them together. And what does that collection think? And one of the things that was the key conclusions of the next five years is whatever the topic, whatever the issue, whatever the crisis, whether it is economic, political, war, natural disaster, 
misinformation was going to make it worse and harder to solve. So this issue cuts across everything. Now, the challenge and what do we do about it is that almost all of our focus has been on either changing software code or legal code. Software code, Facebook, YouTube, change your algorithms, content moderate in a different way. Legal code, government, break up Facebook, um, create this new law around what's allowed online or not, et cetera. Both I, of those I, are, are valuable, and I, I've been part yeah. of those debates. But but on those, though, I mean, and this is my personal view, is I sometimes think, especially when you hear about those kind of comments or those debates being had uh, in, in, in the public sphere, that sometimes a lot of the a lot of the comments around that are a little are a little naive in terms of changing the code will fix it or changing the law will fix it. Actually, there's there's limited amount either of those things will change. Is that right? I mean, what you know, what's your take on it? It's not just a little; it's a lot naive. Right. Um, and so you know, look, I've look, I've been part of, and I'm happy to engage in those debates uh, mm. about all the things that the platform companies need to do differently. I, you know, my, my voice is out there and critiquing mm. them a lot, sometimes praising them, mostly critiquing. Same mm. thing, there are all sorts of levels where governments need to catch up their strategy, and I'm part of that discourse. But as you put it, the, the hard reality is, one, the advocates of these policy changes, whether it's you know, what Facebook ought to do or what the government are going to do, have to realize that first, they're not going to get everything that they want because of just the sheer nature of how business and politics work. You're not going to get 100% of your policy goal. Second, it's not going to solve everything. Third, you are ignoring the experience of the nations that do better at this, the Estonias, the Finlands, who have not changed what Facebook did, but certainly weather the storm of mis and disinformation better. And the reason is the fourth, because you are ignoring the human agency of both the attacker and the target. The attacker who when you change the content moderation policy or when you change this clause in the law, will alter their tactics to work around it. And the, the target, the human, the consumer of the information itself. And so what our focus has been on, we've started a project um, at New America, the nonprofit that I work at, on this key need of digital literacy or what's sometimes also referred to as cyber citizenship. It's about not fact checking, telling people what to read or not, but rather about giving people the skills to navigate effectively online to, as one program calls it, to learn to discern between what is a um, source that's trying to manipulate you or not? What is the signs of a source that's posing as something that it is not? Basically um, giving uh, people the skills mm. to be an effective user of the internet, to be an effective citizen uh, in the 21st century. And um, this, the, the idea of it is that if you give people these better skills it not only makes them more resilient to you know the data shows you know whatever russian disinformation campaigns mm -hmm. it also protects them against all the other toxic forces that are out there makes them less likely to consume and share coronavirus misinformation or um a conspiracy theory related to extremism you name it so it's it's a sort of net positive across a number of areas the challenge of it um is it's despite, and this is the irony, this is the wonderful irony of it, the sad irony of it. This area, they did a study, Carnegie did a study, they brought together all the reports they could find of um, what to do about mis and disinformation. Um, 81 different policy reports and recommendations from over, I think it was 53 different organizations, you know, universities, think tanks. And they scan through them and say, okay, what's the most frequently recommended item? 
most frequently recommended policy action is raise digital literacy. It's the most frequently recommended item. What is the least operated on, least funded <laughs> digital literacy, right? So the, the, the thing that we need to do the most yeah. is the thing that we're doing the least. So what we've started mm. is a program that's um, basically one, it's trying to coalition build around this. So we're bringing together everything from um, educators to tech policy to national security types. And I think part of why it's the least acted on is because it kind of crosses these fields. It's it's both ed policy and it's tech and it's national security. So one is build coalitions around it. Two, go after um, the missing pieces that are preventing it from going to scale. So um, in the US, for example, the challenge for digital literacy, uh, some school systems don't have it, so they need funding for it. Other ones have it, but the toolkits that they utilize are not brought together into a single accessible place. So we're working with the Florida school system to create a portal that a teacher can go to and enter in and say, I'm looking to teach fourth graders about, you know, how to navigate the web safely. That's different than a teacher who's working with, you know, 17 year olds. Mm -hmm. And so they need different, they need to be able to find different mm -hmm. tools. Um, so we're, we're working to build that for Florida, but great. We get it for Florida. We got 49 more States to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's yeah. kind of where we are at right now. And if wow. people listening are interested in these topics, uh, you know, please join our coalition, please reach mm -hmm. out because this is the, it's not going to solve the problem, but it certainly will create greater resilience or a different way of thinking about it is um, it gives us a little bit more of an immunity system against these kind of toxic viral forces. That's fantastic. Well, Peter, thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's been a really, really interesting conversation. And I guess people can find out more uh, in terms of reading your books. Burning is the, the most recent fiction book that you and August have put out. And they can also go to useful-fiction.com to find out more about the work you're doing in that area. Great. Thank you so much for having me and stay well, everybody.